0: Now Colin is going to read to us from God's word.
1: The reading this evening is from the Gospel of John, chapter 6, verse 32. The Gospel of John, chapter 6, starting to read at verse 32 through to verse 58. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him, because he said, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is not this Jesus the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me, not that anyone has seen the Father except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever.
0: Well, it's my pleasure to introduce to you a very long-standing friend and supporter of the Christian Institute, the Reverend Dr. Nick Needham, who is Lecturer in Church History at the Highland Theological College and Minister of the Reformed Baptist Church in Inverness. We look forward to what you have to say to us, and we suspect we have a great deal to learn from you and about John Nevin and for our discipleship today. So, welcome tonight. We look forward to what you have to say to us.
2: Who was John Williamson Nevin, and why does he deserve a place among the great American theologians? We should probably distinguish between great and famous nevin is not in any popular sense famous he is well known to scholars of 19th century american religion although that doesn't describe most of us and he is increasingly well known today among those in the reformed tradition who are thinking seriously about what it really means to be reformed especially if one also wishes to be catholic with a small c that is desiring to be rooted and grounded in the life and teachings of the early church Of say the first four centuries after the Apostles, the church that gave us the New Testament canon and the creeds. But among Christians, among evangelicals broadly, Nevin, we must confess, is not famous. It may be, however, that he was and is great great as a theologian, great as an interpreter of the Reformed faith. And the great surely deserve to be famous, just as some of the famous perhaps don't deserve the title great. Now in his own day Nevin had his moment of fame when together with the church historian Philip Schaff he articulated what became known as Mercersburg theology in the period roughly 1844 to 53 or at least that was uh, the summertime of Mercersburg theology. It's a truly creative period the name was taken from the little Pennsylvania borough of Mercersburg at the foot of the Appalachian Mountains. There, Nevin and Schaff taught in the seminary of the German Reformed Church in America. Uh, indeed, uh, Nevin's moment of fame as architect of Mercersburg theology spilled over outside his denomination. Uh, this was bound up with one of the most intense and fascinating controversies that 19th century American Protestantism has to offer. It was the literary conflict that erupted between Nevin and his old tutor, charles hodge of princeton seminary citadel of american reformed orthodoxy a conflict over the true reformed doctrine of the lord's supper the virtually unanimous consent of modern scholars is that nevin trounced hodge in this controversy unfortunately it was a pyrrhic victory for nevin he earned hodge's lifelong enmity And that was one reason why the English speaking Reformed world of Nevin's day never really recognized his greatness. How could a purportedly Reformed theologian be great, or even orthodox, if Charles Hodge himself, the oracle of Princeton, said repeatedly that the man was a dangerously unsound thinker? Hodge was entirely wrong on this, as we shall see. His vendetta against Nevin is a monument to unfairness nevin was in many ways a more sound thinker and a more reformed thinker than his erstwhile tutor this has been brought out graphically by the very orthodox reformed scholar of today daryl hart in his recent biography of our hero entitled uh, john williamson nevin high church calvinist published by presbyterian and reformed in 2005 but now without further ado let's uh, plunge into the life and work of our subject for tonight john williamson nevin was born of scottish irish ancestry in franklin county pennsylvania on february the 20th 1803 he grew up on his parents farm in the cumberland valley they were devout presbyterians and passed on their faith and churchmanship to their son in 1817 he went to union college new york a kind of boarding school where mathematics and languages dominated the curriculum young nevin's time there was most notable for his experiencing a religious conversion under the ministry of azahel nettleton the conservative calvinist preacher of america's second great awakening the youthful nevin next from 1823 to 28 attended princeton theological seminary or the college of new jersey as it was then called princeton would later in the early 20th century slide into liberal theology but in nevin's day it was a mighty fortress of reformed orthodoxy its most famous theologian was of course charles hodge nevin studied under hodge and indeed was his favorite student ironic and rather sad given their later relationship when hodge went to study in france and germany for two years from 1826 to 28 he appointed nevin to take over his biblical classes showing the very high esteem in which hodge then held his young student nevin had been the best student of hebrew in his year in 1828 nevin wrote summary of biblical antiquities a popular handbook at that time He was licensed to preach that same year by the presbytery of carlisle and that's carlisle pennsylvania from 1830 to 40 we find nevin as professor of biblical literature in the newly established western theological seminary at allegheny near pittsburgh pennsylvania his career over this decade was not distinguished from a personal standpoint it witnessed his marriage in 1835 to Martha Jenkins, daughter of an ironworks owner in Churchtown in Pennsylvania's Lancaster County. Martha was a cultivated woman, well versed in literature, perfectly at home among academics. Having married, she devoted her primary energies to husband and children, of whom there were ultimately eight five sons and three daughters. One of the sons, Herbert, died in infancy. The oldest, Wilberforce, would have a distinguished career as a newspaper editor and engineer the second son robert would become an episcopalian clergyman and be honored with a doctorate in divinity he would also oversee the building of the first ever protestant church in rome of the daughters blanche would be a poet artist and sculptor of some note her most famous sculpture is probably that of general john muhlenberg now in washington dc one of two sculptures representing the state of pennsylvania nevin himself later described his time at western seminary as a period when he began a process of personal re-evaluation in which he came to recognize certain theological and historical deficiencies in himself and tried to correct them prior to this nevin depicted himself as a puritan his biographer james hastings nichols puts it like this nevin was a representative evangelical puritan he would have said in his attitude towards evangelistic and reform activities he had a high doctrine of the invisible church but supposed it to be made visible only in the conversion and obedience of individuals separately the one indispensable means of grace was the bible which must be available for everyone's private study it was the common ground of all evangelical denominations and provided the way of salvation apart from any denomination now the process was by no means clear or simple but during his time at western theological seminary seeds were sown in nevin's mind but blossomed into a major change in his entire mental and spiritual outlook according to nevin himself he especially reassessed his attitude to the history of the church he found himself guilty he says of an inappropriate posture towards the facts of church history what did he mean well the common protestant view at the time shared initially by nevin was that the church collectively fell away from the pure faith very early soon after the death of the apostles and that the middle ages in particular were the dark ages scarcely worth studying when the knowledge of christ had been all but extinguished amid the corruptions of popery then at last the reformation came like a bolt from the blue which miraculously restored pure apostolic christianity in the re-evaluation that nevin was undergoing he was to reject this view quite decisively he came to embrace a much more positive estimate of the early church fathers in particular but the middle ages too the church the community of christ had lived on in unbroken life through those long centuries the gates of hades had not prevailed against her as for the reformation nevin came to believe it was not a miraculous bolt from the blue but an organic outgrowth of medieval theology and medieval spirituality all that was best in the medieval catholic church correcting all that was worst the protestant reformation was nothing less than the greatest act of the catholic church 20th and 21st century protestant scholarship has by and large accepted and championed nevin's outlook here in his own day however it got him into serious trouble as a betrayer of the reformation who was soft on rome in reevaluating his posture towards the history of the church nevin came under the strong influence of contemporary german approaches to church history and theology he was especially impacted by the great german protestant church historian johann august wilhelm neander nevin's friend and biographer theodore Appel said neander's magic wand served to bring up the dead past before nevin in the form of a living present how much nevin owed to neander in the way of excitement impulse suggestion knowledge literary and religious reaching into his life was more than nevin could pretend to explain now neander represented a school of thought in germany known as mediating theology this refers to a theological enterprise undertaken by a number of different thinkers mostly german around that time say 1830 onwards the mediating theologians wish to mediate in their theology that is to find a via media a middle way between the widely divergent influences of the innovative german philosopher george wilhelm friedrich hegel and the innovative german theologian friedrich schleiermacher hegel and schleiermacher were were two of the titans of 19th century thought hegel represented a highly intellectual rationalist philosophical approach to christianity schleiermacher by contrast represented a vibrantly experience-based and church-centered approach what the mediating theologians like neander wanted to do was combine creatively hegel and schleiermacher the objective and the subjective reason and experience the philosophical academy and the believing church mediating theology's most vital concern in this regard which was to become absolutely central for nevin was christology the person of jesus christ the traditional doctrine of the person of christ as expressed in the creeds of the early church was at that time under threat from challenges posed by the budding science of historical criticism historical criticism ruled out the supernatural in its analysis of history attributing all events to natural causes it therefore viewed jesus in purely human terms refusing to accept the historicity of any material in the gospels that implied his deity well mediating theologians tried to chart a middle way that would a be faithful to the basics of traditional christology but also b accept a significant measure of the assumptions and conclusions of historical criticism now, they did this in various different, even contradictory, ways. Uh, mediating theology wasn't a monolithic school of thought. So, Nevin engaged deeply with German mediating theology as he reevaluated his attitudes to church history. As a result, he found himself becoming increasingly disillusioned with the state of evangelicalism in America in his day. And there were two things in particular that came to disturb nevin very profoundly first he abhorred the revivalism associated with the evangelist and social reformer charles finney which nevin believed was grossly pelagian in its view of the relations between god and human beings that is to say, Nevin believed that Finney's exaltation of the human will in his theory and practice of evangelism was a rehash of the ancient heresy of Pelagianism, with its downplaying of the effects of sin on human nature and consequent downplaying of human need for God's transforming grace. Finneyism negated any proper view of Christ as the historical source of a new human community or the church and its ministry as the medium of salvation so the popularity of finney style revivalism among american protestants gravely unsettled nevin but then secondly alongside this even finney's conservative opponents nevin thought such as azahel nettleton under whose preaching nevin had undergone conversion had a too individualistic understanding of christianity in nevin's view they were far too preoccupied with personal experience and with the doctrine of predestination am i one of the elect this for nevin was a distorted kind of spirituality it risked doing away with the visible church and its ministry and sacraments in favor of a radically individualist approach to god's dealings with sinners where everything really centers on my personal experience my conversion my reading of the bible the fact that even the calvinist critics of finney uh, seemed to nevin to be infected with individualism dealt another blow to nevin's peace of mind well as a result of this fairly drastic re-evaluation of his religious outlook nevin came to sum up his critique of all american protestantism including his own reformed heritage in four points it was he said unchurchly unhistorical unsacramental and based on a faulty christology nevin now hankered after a more objective view of christ not so much as someone i experience in terms of the subjective impact he makes on me but as the new adam in whom fallen humanity had been recreated in the arena of actual world history our participation in the old corrupted life of the first adam is not just a matter of individual experiences nevin argued the fall and original sin was something deeper and more objectively real underlying all personal experience likewise our participation in the new holy life of the second adam must be equally deep and objectively real lying beneath the shallow level of mere individuality allied to this Nevin also wanted a more objective view of church and sacraments as the historical community and the visible instruments through which Christ worked. The church, as the gathered people of God, was the repository of Christ's risen life, and it was in and through the church that this life was communicated to others. In particular, the sacraments of baptism and Holy Communion were channels of Christ's life to his people. Through them, he supernaturally worked to bind us to himself and make us sharers in his holiness and glory. Belonging to the visible church, in other words, and participating in its worship and ministry was in all normal circumstances necessary for salvation. This was a view taught in Nevin's cradle confession, the Westminster Confession of Faith it was however well nigh lost in the fireworks of contemporary revivalism where an individual crisis experience of conversion was the be-all and end-all of salvation now to give substance to this massive reevaluation of what it meant to be reformed nevin wanted to go back to the early church fathers and the 16th century reformers especially john calvin as against the later puritans and their descendants who tended to dominate nevin's own reformed tradition in america nevin's profound studies in patristic and reformation history and theology equipped him to become a formidable exponent of his new vision and even like some upstart david to topple the goliath of his old mentor charles hodge when the latter launched an unexpected and cutting attack on him in the pages of the princeton review in 1840 the trustees of mercersburg theological seminary at mercersburg pennsylvania invited nevin to become their professor of theology now this was the seminary of the german reformed church in america a continental european church in origin its doctrinal standards were the belgic confession and the heidelberg catechism rather than the westminster confession of nevin's denomination he consulted his mentors at princeton about transferring his allegiance from the american presbyterians to the german reformed and they advised that there was no theological problem nevin then accepted the job offer and moved to Merseburg, becoming a member of the german reformed church this would be his denomination for the rest of his life now time would fail me if i were to tell of nevin's long and exhausting toils as a tutor and administrator at the Mercersburg seminary within a year of arriving he was made head of the seminary after the unexpected death of its previous principal we catch a flavor of what nevin experienced in this quotation from the historian scott francis brenner nevin found himself head of a seminary that had no money no professors and a student body that always reminded him of the collect where two or three are gathered (laughs) nevin's triumphant labors in maintaining and building up the seminary earned him the undying gratitude and staunch loyalty of the denomination's leaders that would prove a lifesaver when nevin got himself in increasingly hot water through his public theologizing the first fruits of what came to be christened Mercersburg theology sprouted in 1843 with the publication of the first edition of Nevin's tract the anxious bench it was prompted by the inroads that Finney style evangelism and revivalism were making into the German reformed church there had already been a major schism in that church in 1825 when a Phineite revivalist named John Weinbrenner had led a secession to form at length a new denomination the revivalist church of God. Phineism had bitten deep into the German reformed church. At the close of 1842 it invaded Mercersburg itself. A revivalist by the name of William Ramsey preached in the local German reformed congregation where Nevin was a member ramsey used all the techniques of phineasim including the anxious bench that is inviting those concerned for their salvation to come forward and sit on a special bench to be prayed for the mercersburg congregation who were without a minister were impressed enough to issue a call to ramsey nevin deeply perturbed had private words with ramsey an old schoolmate from princeton informing him that he would not support the call except on condition that ramsey changed his ways in the pulpit ramsey offended subsequently declined the call the following year nevin's treatise the anxious bench was published it has been called the most trenchant critique of finney and his evangelistic methods ever written these methods were known as the new measures the most visible new measure was the anxious bench a second expanded edition of nevin's book was published in 1844 it was the first signal of a coming war in nevin's new denomination between the mercersburg theology and its opponents on the other hand the anxious bench not the thing itself but the book of that name by nevin met with the glowing approval of the princeton men like charles hodge they did not fully appreciate that nevin's critique rested at least partially on different theological assumptions than their own what they saw was finney being shot to pieces by a master critic and they applauded but the anxious bench is not merely a negative critique of finney and his pelagian man-centered revivalism it is equally a plea for the church and its god-given means of grace as the true channels of spiritual life these were the first green shoots of nevin's focus on the church as the supernatural body of christ a theme close to the heart of mercersburg theology now the most important event for nevin in 1844 was not the expanded edition of the anxious bench but the arrival in mercersburg of a new church history professor this was philip schaff a young swiss reformed man 25 years old nevin's junior by 19 years who had recently finished his training in germany an instantaneous and fertile rapport sprang up between nevin and schaff they were a union of opposites in personality the older nevin pessimistic brooding, defensive, ultimately vulnerable to severe depression. The younger Schaff, a warm, expansive, generous optimist. Together over the next decade, the two men would articulate Mersersburg theology in a creative partnership of unsurpassed brilliance in the annals of American Protestantism. <coughs> Although Nevin has fallen into undeserved obscurity, Schaff's name has lived on. Because of the enduring works of church history he wrote or edited. His eight volume History of the Christian Church is still in print today and has a well merited reputation for its depth of scholarship, balanced judgments, and vivid narrative. Schaff's Creeds of Christendom is another work that has stood the test of time. He also edited the standard 38 volume translation of the early church fathers into English in many ways these are the most lasting fruits of Mercersburg theology Schaff's inaugural address for the seminary outlined the understanding of the reformation and its place in church history that was to characterize his and nevin's work entitled the principle of protestantism it was written originally in german and translated into english by nevin it was hardly an auspicious beginning for schaff some in the german reformed church found his philosophy of church history a shock to the system with its belief that protestantism was rooted in the soil of the medieval catholic church they scented a betrayal of the reformation controversy dogged the new partnership of nevin and schaff from the very start now it was in that context that nevin's most controversial work rolled or maybe exploded off the printing press in 1846 this was a treatise on the lord's supper entitled the mystical presence its subtitle is a vindication of the reformed or calvinistic doctrine of the holy eucharist now the background to the writing of the book was a dispute that had broken out in the german reformed church over the anxious bench a german reformed minister named joseph berg had publicly criticized nevin's negative stance on finney style revivals berg was also one of the most vocal opponents of roman catholicism in america and felt alarm and outrage at Schaff's inaugural address with its view of the reformation as being in continuity with medieval catholicism Rather than as Berg believed, a simple and complete rejection of it. Nevin, of course, was intimately connected with Schaff's lecture as its translator. On top of this, Nevin had set out similar views to Schaff in a recent sermon entitled "Catholic Unity." As Berg and Nevin exchange blows nevin tried to prove how out of touch berg was with the real theology of the reformation by arguing that the reformers had believed in the real presence of christ in the lord's supper this was in strong contrast to the views of berg and his supporters who looked on the supper as nothing more than a memorial service as the controversy heated up the entire presbytery of philadelphia where berg was situated passed six resolutions in 1845 attacking the teaching of nevin and Schaff at the seminary among the presbytery's resolutions was a rebuke to nevin's statement about the real presence of christ in the lord's supper and a ringing assertion that the sole purpose of the supper was to remind believers that christ had died for them for berg and the philadelphia presbytery quite explicitly the lord's supper was a symbolic memorial of jesus death and nothing more with the backing of the philadelphia presbytery berg now spearheaded a charge of heresy against both schaff and nevin for their alleged disloyalty to the reformation the church courts however dismissed the charge by an overwhelming vote only three in favor of berg's accusation 40 against berg continued his anti mercersburg crusade in the pages of a magazine the protestant banner of which he was the editor nevin was sufficiently galvanized by these events especially by berg's attacks on his allegedly anti-reformed views of the lord's supper to reply with a full-length book the mystical presence Now if any of Nevin's writings ought to secure his place as a great American theologian it has to be the mystical presence. The church historian Brian Gerrish in his Tradition and the Modern World Reformed Theology in the 19th Century says of Nevin's book that it deserves to be ranked among the classics of American theological literature jonathan bonomo in his recent study of nevin and hodge rightly affirms that the mystical presence is widely regarded as one of the greatest and most unique theological writings to have been produced on american soil in the 19th century now nevin's purpose in this treatise was threefold first he argued that the teaching of the reformed faith in its classical age the 16th and 17th centuries especially in its creeds and confessions was not that the lord's supper is merely a symbolic memorial but that christ is truly objectively really present in the supper in all the fullness of his person as the god man feeding the church with his very body and blood believers do not merely remember that christ died for them or meditate on his sacrifice or even just receive the blessings of that sacrifice above and beyond all this the holy spirit brings the church into an actual life-giving union and communion with christ in his glorified humanity so that we feast spiritually on that very flesh that was crucified for us and that very blood that was outpoured through this communion with the savior's body and blood we are supernaturally nourished in the new life that christ has given us nevin demonstrated with an avalanche of quotations that this was indeed the teaching of john calvin and the reformed tradition in its golden age nevin pointed out that the classic reformed teaching was not the same as the roman catholic doctrine of transubstantiation he knew it was being misunderstood that way by those like joseph berg who no longer believed in any real presence of christ in the lord's supper the bread and wine nevin argued remained fully and truly bread and wine in their own nature and substance so no change of substance was involved the bread and wine did however become instruments by means of which the holy spirit conveyed the Saviour's body and blood to believers there was a union between the signs and the realities signified so that the believer who partook of the signs also partook of the realities yet the sign was one thing the reality it signified another the classic reformed view thus preserved the mystery of the real presence without lapsing into any roman idea of transubstantiation nevin's second purpose was to show that since the 18th century the reformed churches in america had largely abandoned their own traditions classical teaching on christ's presence in the lord's supper in favor of memorialism he had no difficulty proving this with embarrassing quotations from jonathan edwards samuel hopkins timothy dwight albert barnes and other american reformed writers thirdly nevin argued that the old reformed doctrine was grounded in a belief that the incarnation god becoming man in jesus christ was the central heart of christian faith god had taken human nature into union with himself in the person of christ therefore the very person of christ as the god man was the groundwork of everything else in christianity including the atonement the atoning efficacy of christ's death depends on and flows from the union of deity and humanity in his person who christ is precedes and undergirds everything he does nevin was uh, trying here to correct what he believed was a very damaging false emphasis in american evangelicalism where the incarnation had been marginalized in favor of an almost exclusive concentration on the cross as though the latter could have any meaning apart from the former the atonement between god and man accomplished on the cross nevin insisted was rooted deep in the soil of the at the union between deity and humanity in the very person of the redeemer only if one grasped the pivotal centrality of the incarnation could one then understand why the believer's union with christ in his human nature a real present living participation in his body and blood lay at the heart of the lord's supper life union with a living christ is the reality of the supper rather than merely remembering that christ died for us two thousand years ago nevin also devoted much space to safeguarding the mystery of communion with christ in the supper from crude notions of cannibalism as though we physically ingested the particles of the lord's flesh the essence of a body is its life he argued not its physical atoms what the holy spirit gives us is participation in the life of christ's glorified humanity this part of nevin's treatise is much more original and even philosophical but no less impressive and stimulating here then is nevin's masterpiece jonathan bonomo calls it nevin's most representative and brilliant piece of theological writing well brilliant it may have been but the mystical presence was the writing that caused a complete rupture between nevin and his old mentor charles hodge of princeton hodge wrote a scathing indeed a damning review of the book in the princeton review in 1848 where he defended a view of the lord's supper that was much closer to symbolic memorialism hodge acknowledged that in the supper we partake of the blessings purchased for us by christ's death but not of christ's actual body and blood the same blessings were just as available through preaching and prayer hodge tried to argue that this view was the authentic reformed view and that nevin's view was an aberration however hodge's essay was more than just a rejection of nevin's view of the lord's supper hodge attacked the whole of nevin's theology lock stock and barrel nevin's theology hodge declared is anti-protestant in its theory of christianity in its theory of the church of the relative authority of scripture and tradition of justification of the sacraments and of the ministry in other words nevin had in fact got every single thing wrong in this regard hodge accused him of being a slavish follower of the theological liberalism of schleiermacher the german thinker for hodge schleiermacher represented everything that was bad in modern theology and nevin was merely schleiermacher in american clothing now hodge's accusation here was uh, i think very unfair while nevin had indeed studied schleiermacher quite deeply and appropriated his view of christ as bestower of a new life mediated historically through the community of the church that was as far as it went unlike schleiermacher nevin combined this with radically serious views of sin and a completely traditional orthodox doctrine of the incarnation hodge also accused nevin of pantheism the view that god and the world are identical this accusation was based again on hodge's determination to see nevin as a disciple of schleiermacher for schleiermacher christ was no more than the perfect man how then could one ascribe divinity to him except by identifying god and man nevin must therefore be a pantheist well this was frankly an absurd accusation to make against nevin it shows how far hodge had been led astray by polemical fervor nevin replied to hodge's annihilating review first of all in the preface to a new treatise by nevin entitled the antichrist or the spirit of sect and schism here he clarified in what way he found good things in schleiermacher and in what way he found him sadly unorthodox and differed fundamentally from him especially in nevin's full-blooded embrace of the traditional christology of the creeds a much fuller response however came in the pages of mercesburg seminary's own magazine this was founded by Nevin and Schaff in 1849, apparently in direct reaction to Hodge's Princeton Review attack. The new Mercersburg Review carried a 100 page essay by Nevin entitled Doctrine of the Reformed Church on the Lord's Supper. The historian Robert Clemmer says of this essay this reply, which revealed Nevin's vastly greater mastery of the historical sources, completely silenced hodge and constitutes one of the most brilliant and devastatingly effective pieces of polemical writing in the history of american theological controversy well it did not actually completely silence hodge after a lengthy interval of years he replied again in the princeton review continuing to paint nevin as a liberal disciple of schleiermacher and a pantheist nevin himself also returned to the attack with a critique of hodge's commentary on ephesians he rejected hodge's way of construing predestination because to nevin it made the visible church and its life and ministry and sacraments ultimately irrelevant all that really mattered was belonging to the invisible church of the elect hodge in other words had for nevin failed rightly to align god's grace in jesus christ with membership in the visible historical church now so far as the literary duel over the lord's supper is concerned as i mentioned at the beginning of the lecture nevin won that debate with hodge hands down in the judgment of virtually all historians of doctrine he not only demonstrated that the classical reformed theology of the 16th and 17th century supported his view he also forced hodge to admit that calvin himself was on nevin's side and that calvin had in hodge's opinion taught an extreme peculiar and dubious doctrine of the supper the words are hodges nevin then had successfully exposed how far american reformed theology in his day even in the high orthodox fortress of princeton had wandered from the teaching of its own creeds and confessions on the lord's supper it's very interesting that the mystical presence got a completely different reception among reformed theologians in switzerland and germany where the book was warmly commended as a good exposition of ordinary reformed teaching nevin's academic victory however brought him little or no practical benefit in america the antagonism of hodge ensured that nevin's reputation fell under a cloud from which it never really recovered In the American Reformed world, Hodge went on repeating to the end of his life the almost libelous verdict that Nevin was a slavish devotee of Schleiermacher's liberalism and a pantheist to boot. Further, this rejection of the mystical presence by the American Reformed orthodoxy of the day proved to be the launching pad for a crisis of faith within Nevin that was to swell to catastrophic dimensions over the next eight years the nature of that growing crisis for nevin was whether contemporary protestantism could in any meaningful sense represent the church founded by christ and the apostles as testified to by the early church fathers if protestantism now rejected the supernatural mystery of christ's presence in his supper thereby compromising the reality of the Incarnation then the awful thought began to germinate in nevin's mind that perhaps after all he would find a more congenial spiritual home in roman catholicism nevin's agonizing over the choice between protestantism and rome was what he later called his dizzy period roughly 1851 to 54 he was told so loudly and so often that his beliefs had no place in a protestant church but were taking him to rome that he began to half believe it himself his renewed studies in the early church fathers deepened this feeling in the Mercersburg review nevin produced a four-part series on the apostles creed a three-part series on early christianity and a three-part series on cyprian the third century bishop of carthage these studies while of high quality Did nothing to reassure Nevin's own mind. In his disturbed state, he began to doubt whether even the original pristine Protestantism of Luther and Calvin really embodied the Christianity of the early church. Was Rome truly his home? Nevin's depression and dizziness were egged on by the continuing conflicts in his own denomination over his and philip Schaff's understanding of theology and church history their chief opponent was still joseph berg of philadelphia berg never wearied of accusing the mercersburg professors of heresy and more especially of being witting or unwitting agents of the pope berg dramatically resigned from the german reformed church in 1852 claiming that as a martyr for truth he had been driven out by nevin and Schaff's romanizing heresies and the denomination's refusal to do anything about them berg's departure should have signaled victory for nevin but in fact it was too late by the time berg shook the dust off his feet and went his way nevin himself was psychologically a defeated man nevin's inner brokenness was brought on by a cluster of things there was the seemingly pointless and unending conflict with the hodges and bergs of the world there was the exhaustion of having to run the seminary with so few resources there was the mounting crisis of faith over whether he could honestly remain a protestant there were debilitating physical illnesses as Darrell hart comments in his recent biography of nevin not one day passed without physical pain from his stomach and liver. It was all too much. Nevin had already resigned in 1851 as professor of theology at Mercersburg, although continuing as president of Marshall College, a liberal arts college run by his denomination. In 1852, he stepped down as editor and chief article writer for the Mercersburg Review. In 1853, he resigned from Marshall College the following year he and his wife martha and their family moved from mercersburg to carlisle pennsylvania where nevin became a gentleman farmer for the next seven years he gradually recuperated in body and soul he would not be ready to resume sustained public service to his denomination until 1861 ironically the year that peace ended for america and the civil war broke out nevin himself was anti-slavery and his sons served in the northern army but what of nevin's crisis of faith well we don't know how he resolved this resolve it however he obviously did to the disappointment of leading american roman catholics nevin decided not to go to rome by the close of 1854 he had emerged from his crisis sufficiently to commit himself to continue the search for the church within protestantism the decisive evidence for this is an ordination sermon he preached in november 1854 for bernard Wolfe, a baltimore minister of the german Reformed church the sermon was a lengthy exposition of ephesians 4 verse 8 following entitled the christian ministry here nevin sets out what we might describe as high church calvinism a view of church and ministry as a supernatural order that carries the presence life and authority of the risen christ within the world the sermon wasn't exactly a resounding endorsement of protestantism rather as darrell hart says it affirmed the only basis on which nevin could continue to be a protestant if the german reformed church could provide a platform upon which he might try to work out such an understanding of the christian ministry nevin was prepared to stay and stay he did nevin would live on work on and die as a protestant albeit in some way as a disenchanted one the disenchantment in my view was not of his own deliberate making it was the reaction of a temperamentally melancholy and sensitive man to the degraded aspects of american protestantism in his own day in 1861 nevin finally felt physically psychologically and spiritually strong enough to come out of retirement and resume teaching in his denominations liberal arts college marshall college or franklin and marshall college as it now was in lancaster nevin taught history in 1866 the board of the college offered him the presidency and nevin accepted it seems that nevin was the only man in the german reformed church who could give the college intellectual credibility the old mercersburg controversy reared its head again however there was still a party within nevin's denomination which opposed everything he stood for and they tried to sabotage his appointment they were defeated the majority in the church had enormous affection and respect for nevin and although they didn't all necessarily embrace his vision of historic christianity they were willing to give him his platform nevin spent the next 10 years as a very efficient president of the college retiring a second and final time in 1876 Nevin's final contribution to the German Reformed Church and to Reformed theology generally was his involvement in his denomination's revision of its forms of worship. As a transplant into America of a church body from the German Palatinate, with Heidelberg as its university, Nevin's church already had a liturgy. This was the historic Palatinate liturgy of 18, uh, 1563. This had been translated into English in 1837. It wasn't widely used, however, and there was a feeling among many in the denomination that a new liturgy should be provided. So a committee was appointed in 1847 to look at the whole issue. Nevin was originally chairman of this committee, but was replaced by Schaff in 1851 as Nevin entered his dizzy period over whether to stay a Protestant. Still Nevin remained involved one way or another with the committee's work and after weathering his crisis of faith became more active again. He had strong input into the liturgy especially its order of service for communion. The final product was published in 1857 with a 10-year trial period being stipulated by the denomination. Alas for Nevin he soon found himself embroiled in controversy again as the liturgy divided opinion in the church we shall spare ourselves the details of this tangled tale suffice it to note that it produced nevin's last major work his vindication of the revised liturgy in 1867 it has been called a summary of nevin's whole theology rather than a narrow defense of the liturgy that he'd so largely helped to write it is fascinating however To look at the sources on which nevin drew to compose the service for holy communion this has been done with meticulous accuracy by liturgical scholar jack maxwell in his book worship and reformed theology which reprints the entire communion liturgy maxwell color codes the different passages in the liturgy according to their origin so we find that nevin has woven together passages from the anglican book of common prayer the old german palatinate liturgy the communion service of the catholic apostolic church a 19th century denomination representing what we could call high church pentecostalism with some material from nevin's own pen and some from the bible let me give you a specimen which comes entirely from nevin our blessed saviour jesus christ when he was about to finish the work of our redemption by making himself a sacrifice for our sins upon the cross solemnly instituted the holy sacrament of his own body and blood that it might be the abiding memorial of his precious death the seal of his perpetual presence in the church by the holy ghost the mystical exhibition of his one offering of himself made once but of force always to put away sin the pledge of his undying love to his people and the bond of his living union and fellowship with them to the end of time from all this you may understand how great and glorious this sacrament is and with what just reason it have ever been regarded in the church as that act of worship in which men are brought most near to god and as it were into the innermost sanctuary of his presence the holiest of all where more than in any other service it is fit that their adoration should be joined with sacred reverence and awe we have to do here in a mystery not with the shadows and types only of heavenly things but with the very realities themselves of that true spiritual world in which christ now risen from the dead continually lives and reigns and then follows an exhortation to participate in a right state of mind The Mercersburg Liturgy had a checkered career owing to the continuing opposition to Nevin's ideals by some within his denomination and a lack of enthusiasm for any kind of liturgy, among others. The liturgy faded away completely when the German Reformed Church ceased to have its own distinctive character by merging in 1934 with the Evangelical Synod in North America. The new denomination, the Evangelical and Reformed Church, itself merged in 1957 with most of the congregational christian churches to form the united church of christ noted for its liberalism in theology and ethics however the Mercersburg liturgy did have a significant if diffuse influence in scotland for example it clearly influenced the Eucologion a manual of worship produced by the church service society of the church of scotland the Eucologion first came out in 1867 by 1924 it had gone through 11 editions even more fascinating the free church of scotland worthy andrew boner brother of horatius used mercersburg material in his own book of prayers and devotions published in 1858 nevin died peacefully in 1886 at the age of 83 having spent the last decade of his life in retirement although still active in his local congregation preaching baptizing and teaching children in sunday school remarkably at his funeral the only well-known figure to pay tribute to nevin was a a hodge son of charles with whom nevin had waged such a long war so damaging to his own reputation the son of charles hodge said in his funeral address that john williamson nevin was one of presbyterianism's few great theologians perhaps we should see this as a triumph of charity but perhaps it was also the triumph of justice and truth at least in some measure Nevin is better recognized today than at any previous time. In the past five years, three serious studies have been published. There's Darrell Hart's uh, 2005 biography, uh, John Williamson Nevin, High Church Calvinist, published by uh, Presbyterian and Reformed. There's uh, W. Bradford Littlejohn's uh, study, The Mercersburg Theology and the Quest for Reformed Catholicity, published in 2009. And then this year, 2010, uh, we have Jonathan Bonomo's Incarnation and Sacrament, the Eucharistic Controversy between Charles Hodge and John Williamson Nevin. Perhaps we're in the middle of some Nevin renaissance here. For me, however, the best book is still James Hastings Nichols' Romanticism in American Theology, Nevin and Schaff at Mercer'sburg, first published in uh, 1961 nichols writes not only with profound learning but with literary grace always a winning combination towering even above nichols however is nevin's own masterpiece the mystical presence still in print today you can get it from amazon for the princely sum of 12 pounds 96 few books make a genuinely landmark impact on a person's mind and heart but reading the mystical presence when i was a theology student was most assuredly a landmark in my own spiritual life so i wish the nevin renaissance well uh, and i commend him to you not only as a great american theologian or a great presbyterian theologian but one of the great if not famous theologians of the church universal whose life and work are of abiding value especially if we are reformed and wish to have a rich deep appreciation of our own tradition its catholicity and its place in church history.
0: Thank you you very much for that very comprehensive review. Um, I think Nick is prepared to take some questions. Perhaps there might be some initial questions about any points of clarification anyone would like to make. If not, we can enter into a general discussion.
1: Um, When I told someone I was coming to this talk, they said, oh, he wrote one good book, and then disappeared into federal visionism. All oh, right. Uh, what? Well, how would you... Uh, <laughs> I won't say, actually. But I, I would just like your comment on whether you think his understanding of salvation
2: was orthodox? Reformed, you Reformed, mean? Orthodox, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that ne- uh, Nevin's soteriology was, was entirely reformed. Uh, he wasn't denying... Um, things that we would take for granted like justification by faith the imputation of christ's righteousness uh, substitutionary atonement that's all there in nevin uh in a sense what you find in nevin is he takes that for granted and then says but look there are deeper things underlying that to make it all meaningful and especially the incarnation the union of the two natures in christ and he concentrates all his energy on trying to draw out uh, the meaning of that mystery. So if you like, you could say there's a a disproportionate emphasis in Nevin on the incarnation. But I think that's really because he was taking those other things for granted. They weren't in dispute within his denomination or within American Presbyterianism. Uh, And I don't think it's... I mean, it's anachronistic to say he disappeared into federal visionism because that didn't exist in the 19th century. And now... I have to kind of plead relative ignorance here. I don't really know much about uh, federal visionism, so I'm not seeing,
1: um, seeing yourself being saved as uh, by your faith community in some kind. Of, well, you know, I mean, in summary, something that it's you're saved through your, your the uh, membership of your
2: church, and um, I wonder whether you were hinting at that uh, when he had, he also had a very high view of the church, didn't he? Of the visible church, the visible yes. church yes, but. I mean, I would argue that there he was really just um, he was glossing what the Westminster Confession says. Uh, the Westminster Confession gives a, a description of the visible church, which unfortunately I haven't memorised, and then it says something like, uh, "Out of which there is no ordinary possibility of salvation." Um, so, although you know the word "salvation" maybe needs to be interrogated a bit there, you know you, you can be. You can, you can get initial salvation anywhere through faith. But what happens then? How is that salvation nurtured? How is it carried along? How is it developed? It's through the ministry of the visible church. You've got to be in the church for that salvation to continue and grow and develop. That's, that's the aspect of it that Nevin was focusing on, I think.
3: If you use the word mystical or mysticism... What do you actually mean by that in practical terms? Um, I think of Swites uh, as the mysticism of St. Paul the Apostle. But what uh, to the
4: yeah.
3: person who you're trying to tell, there's a mystical Christ. How do yeah. you actually get that across to that person?
2: Yeah. Yeah, when Nevin uses the word mystical, he's using it in the old sort of... Uh, 16th 17th century sense it is virtually a synonym for spiritual it doesn't carry connotations of of mysticism in the modern sense of um, you know anybody can have uh an experience of union with god if only they meditate long enough or chant long enough uh you know you find the old theologians the puritans as well using this word mystical really to mean a spiritual Uh, that which is undertaken through the ministry of the Holy Spirit so when Nevin talks about the mystical presence of Christ in the Lord's Supper he means that presence of Christ which is mediated through the ministry of the Holy Spirit he's not talking about the kind of mysticism that you have in the new age movement and that sort of thing
1: well perhaps it's an obvious question you're a Baptist Nick now here's a man who's a Is a Presbyterian, Peter Baptist. Why was it really the Lord's Supper that, for you, got you interested in
2: uh, the whole thing? Yes, uh, it was. It was the doctrine of the Lord's Supper that uh, first drew me to Nevin, and uh, his understanding of the real spiritual presence of Christ and our communion with him, and our receiving by faith his body and blood, that's all in my confession of faith, 1689 Baptist Confession. It's just that most people don't realise it's there. But it's there very clearly uh, in that uh, section of the 1689 Confession. So on that point, I would argue that uh, Nevin's view of the Lord's Supper is in fact the old historic Calvinistic Baptist view of the Lord's Supper. So there's no difference between him and me there. Does that?
3: Does that
1: oh. What are the what are the view of uh, what are the view of church history? I mean, you were, you, was, you yeah. studied church history. That was your. Well,
2: I've done a little bit. He yeah. <laughs> 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 very
1: much uh, uh, endorsed that that study of, uh, as worthy.
2: I can't remember what impact he had on my understanding of church history, um, because. Right from when I first became a Christian, I was already interested in the early church fathers and in the controversies, the Christological and Trinitarian controversies of the early centuries. So I was kind of immersed in that from the word go and always had a respect for the the early traditions and so on. Um, It's lost in the mists of time whether Nevin kind of nurtured that on or or not. But I mean now, yeah, I, I basically agree with what he's saying now. And especially that point about the Reformation springing out of medieval theology and spirituality. I mean, I think that's undeniable. If you look at the primary source material, that's certainly how Luther and Calvin understood themselves. Luther saw himself as being too Catholic for the Pope. It was the Pope who was the innovator and had departed from Catholic tradition.
5: Nick,
0: this is following on, I think, to Chris's question. If I got you right... Uh, I think you characterize Nevin's ecclesiology as being basically consonant uh, with Westminster. Um, would you say that that would go, for instance, for his denial of the of, or collapse of the distinction between the
2: visible and invisible church? Yeah, I'm. Uh, I'm still struggling with that one, to be honest. I- I'm probably not entirely happy with the distinction myself, but I must I must confess that I'm not entirely clear what Nevin is trying to put in its place. He uses a quite different terminology. He talks about the actual church and the ideal church, but I'm not entirely clear what he means by that. So I'm kind of I'm caught on that one. Um, I, I can see the strength of some of his criticisms. At least of the way the visible-invisible distinction has been used, um, particularly if it's used to downgrade the importance of the visible church, so that the only thing that matters is that I believe and I'm one of the elect. I mean that 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 can't be right. But I'm not clear what he's trying to put in its place, so I can't really shed much light on that. So I'm sorry, I can't give a better answer to that one.
4: Um, Robert Bruce was the second generation successor of John Knox at the High Kirk <laughs> in uh, Edinburgh and wrote a book, The Mystery of the Lord's Supper. Indeed. Could you very briefly sum up Bruce's view and how it compared or contrasted with Nevin?
2: I can't claim to have read that book from cover to cover. I've dipped into it. I mean, I think that Bruce is simply teaching the common 16th century Calvinian view of the Lord's Supper uh, and in particular whereby uh, the believer through the exercise of faith and by the ministry of the Holy Spirit communes in the body and blood of Christ rather than it just being an exercise in memory I mean, and that's very clear in Bruce um, but I don't think Bruce there is saying anything different from Calvin and I don't think Nevin was saying anything essentially different from Calvin so I'd put all three of them in continuity with each other.
5: Um, I, I have to admit, I, I thought I understood uh, broadly, of course, broadly the Reformed view of the Eucharist uh, before I came this evening. And um, uh, I, mean, I, I remember as a student hearing packer drawing the distinction between Zingli and Luther and then and his own position. And, yeah. But nevertheless, at the same time, you know, uh, making the point that uh, a means of grace by which Christ ministers himself to us. But at the same time, I remember these words particularly saying, but Christ is at the table, not in the elements, you know. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is, uh, related to that, I know we should have high ambitions for our own uh, understanding and the the understanding of our brothers and sisters, but I am struggling a bit to visualise that this, these distinctions can mean much to, to many of, of them, and yeah. perhaps us. Right. I, that, that's not meant to be a discouraging. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've, you've really challenged us to see. Right. Can you visualise that these distinctions can be meaningful and helpful to... you? Know, I'm, I'm talking about to serious-minded Christians but nevertheless at all widely, rather than a very narrow group of experts. I suppose that's what I'm struggling
2: with. Well, I mean, if I can speak purely experientially, I mean, I, I know that my own, my own experience, my own appreciation of the Lord's Supper underwent a pretty seismic change when I abandoned mere memorialism and began to believe that Being at the Lord's table wasn't just me casting my mind back to an event in the past. It was me actually feasting on Christ here and now. Um, And I think it it does make a difference to one's own faith and one's own spirituality. Um, As for the kind of distinctions between different understandings of Of the reality of Christ at his table. Actually, I think Nevin would have agreed with that comment that you quoted from Packer Christ is at the table, not in the bread and wine. Nevin spends quite some time trying to safeguard uh, the idea that uh, the bread and wine are miraculously changed into Christ's body and blood in some kind of physical or local sense. That's why he entitled his treatise, The Mystical Presence. It's the Holy Spirit who mediates the presence of Christ to us. The bread and wine are instruments in the hand of the Spirit, whereby the Spirit gives us to commune in the Lord's body and blood. Um, I suppose for me, that the important thing is to get beyond just remembering that there is more to it than that, and that does make a difference to our own faith, our own piety, our own experience at the Lord's table. Um, but... Accepting that there are still different theologies—Calvin, Luther, Rome, Eastern Orthodoxy—is that what you do? You have that in mind as well?
5: I, I wasn't thinking of that, Paul. Right. But thank you anyway. I'm not sure I express myself. It's yeah, it's difficult. Well, okay. Th-
2: thanks.
3: I have to say I'm not quite sure what it is I want to ask, but it's it's about the Lord's Supper and. Mm-hmm. I hear very little, that may be due to me, but I hear very little said about the Lord's Supper and its importance to uh, Christians. After all, Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. Why is it that there appears to be so little said about it? Have we made it a sort of second order issue? Is salvation and coming to faith in christ the all-important things so it's it's been it's been relegated uh i've found this disturbing for quite a long time i mean i i was confirmed into the church of england as a sort of mid-teenager and i didn't know until later that that was a very liberal church but what I'm going to say is, I don't say out of any sense of pride, but I hardly missed an 8 o'clock communion service at this Anglican church for three years. And that meant an enormous amount to me, to just to go to communion and to reflect on Christ's death, why he died for me. And the importance of that for me, and I don't think I was regarding it as a memorial, but as years have gone on, i found, even in the Evangelical Anglican church that it's almost not, uh, perhaps played down isn't, aren't the right word, but the importance of it for us uh, seems to be almost ignored now. It's not an issue anymore. I don't know whether others here would share that from, 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 from their churches, but it's something that I really do have enormous concern about. It's almost as though it's about me But really, it should be about Christ and what he's done for us. And there is a mysticism in that. We can't understand uh, everything about it. But I just feel that it's played down. And I wonder if if that is so, why you think that's so.
2: Mm. I think in some traditions, some some denominations, um, going right back to the 16th century... um, they never did manage to extricate themselves out of uh, the, the infrequency with which medieval Christians actually participated in the mass. It had gone down to once a year, basically, in the later medieval church. There was, there was such a superstitious awe of uh, the wafer and so on. And a number of... Uh, of reformed churches were never really able to correct that. They managed to, they managed to ratchet it up to four times a year. It was really difficult persuading people to take part more often. And that, just, that tradition just got perpetuated right up to the present day in, uh, in some uh, historic denominations. Um, in other cases, I suspect that there is... Uh, i think you mentioned this that there's there's an undue emphasis on personal conversion that's that's the be all and the end all of my salvation so that that thing the lord's supper can't really be that important i mean i've got everything i've been converted i have faith i know jesus christ as my personal savior and that's then used to downplay other things as if they were a threat to that rather than a means of building that up and enriching it so that's just bad teaching and bad understanding I think um, put those two things together and you've got a recipe for uh, not taking the Lord's Supper as, in, as seriously as it deserves to be taken um, so I mean I, I, I agree with you I'm just kind of thinking out loud here as to why it might be uh. I
0: had never anything to say about how frequent. Uh, should be and Mm -hmm. should the table be fenced protected or is it all just open because it's become in many churches a very open table and casually done. i have to say that
2: Mm. i mean i i can't think that nevin would have uh, i can't quote chapter and verse just from what i know of him I, i can't believe he would have had a a totally open undisciplined table it just doesn't fit with his churchmanship Um, as to i don't recollect him recollect him talking about frequency anywhere but i haven't got round to reading that article he wrote in the mercersburg review that basically because it's so difficult to get hold of uh, you can download it off a website but it's really awkward printing it out and i've managed to print out the first 30 pages so far i think i don't recollect him saying anything about frequency and the mystical presence but that might just might be fallible memory i
1: just wonder if you could help with the explanation of the the understanding that you've outlined of the lord's supper uh, what biblical arguments or passages people like calvin or or Nevin or one of these other people would have have pointed to 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 show us from scripture Uh,
2: 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 16 the cup of blessing that we bless is it not a participation in the blood of Christ the bread that we break is it not a participation in the body of Christ now I can't really see how that verse lends itself to mere memorialism. Uh, By partaking of the bread, we are partaking of the body of Christ. By partaking of the cup, we're partaking of the blood of Christ. I mean, I would say by faith rather than in some grossly carnal way. But that verse does seem to be teaching clearly that there is a a participation, a, a, a communion. I think some translations render it in the body and blood of christ Um, and then there's in the next chapter of one corinthians chapter 11 we have um anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself what what does that mean some some would say that means the body of the church Uh, i mean certainly the traditional exegesis it means discerning the presence of the lord's body in in communion maybe it means both um and then you've got the statement um ah yeah verse 27 whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the lord well if all it is is just bread and just wine how are you profaning the body and blood of the Lord by eating and drinking unworthily? All you're doing is profaning bread and wine, if in no sense at all are his body and blood being offered, given, participated in. So, I mean, those are some of the, the biblical verses that uh, Calvin, Nevin and others would have, would have pointed to.
4: I was just going to ask a question about whether you think that uh, 1 Corinthians... 11 has been so emphasized, and we've so underemphasized 1 Corinthians 10, but also um, J.C. Ryle in Expository Thoughts on the Gospel of John. I think he says something about John 6 yeah. to the effect that John 6 is not the communion, yeah. but the communion is about, about John about 6. John, yeah, yeah. Would you yeah. expand?
2: Yeah, just speaking purely personally, I mean, uh, the, the text I. Uh, prefer to read out as a kind of standard text for the celebration of the Lord's Supper is one Corinthians ten sixteen rather than anything from chapter eleven. And uh, my church, we have the Lord's Supper every Sunday, and I always read out one Corinthians ten sixteen. Um, I know that the view Ryle takes there that not John 6 is about the Lord's Supper the Lord's Supper is about John 6 that's actually a quite common uh, evangelical Protestant exegesis, Lutheran and Reformed Um, my only hesitation about that, I'm not pronouncing judgment on that one I'm I'm very hesitant about it but um, my difficulty in enthusiastically embracing that understanding is that kind of revealing my own prejudices here uh, the, the early church fathers seem to take it pretty uniformly that John 6 is about the Lord's Supper and when you read the language of John 6 uh, given that John doesn't actually have an account of the institution of the Last Supper anywhere if he's not talking about it in John 6 then he's not talking about it anywhere in his gospel so so Those are the thoughts I have, but I'm not making a final decision.
4: Is there a a sense in which, as Protestants, we react almost in fear against the transubstantiation of Rome, and therefore that we have said, oh, John 6 can't be anything to do with communion, and so on with regard to one ten.
2: And, in my opinion, um, this kind of almost tribal memory of reacting against Rome, so that uh, we dare not say that Christ is in any sense present in case we seem to give comfort to transubstantiation. Uh, you know, I've heard prayers at the Lord's table which go on and on about what isn't happening rather than what is happening. And it gets quite dispiriting. So I, I think there is a kind of romophobic element there that we ought to get over, really.
6: I um... was As the breaking of bread, representing the the Lord's Supper, it's for believers, right? And uh, I think what you've been saying there tonight, uh, a lot of truth in it, but the thing is, what we've got to remember is the blood that was shed on the cross was our salvation. Uh That's what it's all about. The blood wasn't shed for nothing, it was shed for something. Uh And it says in the book of Revelation, they overcame by the blood of the lamb Uh and by the word of their testimony. Uh And that's what it's all about. Uh The blood of the lamb, the the Lord's Supper is for believers Uh to remind them when they take that, and if you've just read in the scripture there about anybody that takes it, uh, and they're not right with God, yeah. Then they've got they've got to answer to God for that because they don't they I think it says in one um reference bringeth it is and bringeth damnation yeah. Yeah. to themselves.
2: Yes, yes. I mean, uh, and uh, Calvin and Nevin uh, would, would say very strongly that um, he who partakes in the Lord's supper without faith does not receive any benefit, does not receive any blessing faith is absolutely essential it's the precondition of feeding on the body and blood of christ um i think what what i was trying to get across in this talk is that uh you know not not denying that there is a, a past looking back aspect to the lord's supper we are remembering but it's more than that that's what i was trying to get across not that it isn't that but it's more than that and you've, all, you've just read it tonight in the second part. Um,
6: God gives a man an opportunity to examine himself yes. before he takes yes. out that, bre- that, uh, yes. that bread. Yes. And yes. So he can put himself right.
3: Yes.
6: And that's the, that's the wonderful thing yes. about God. He gives you an opportunity to do it. Yes. If, when once the Holy Spirit has made it yes. uh, evident to yes. you yes. of what, is, what, what you're actually doing. Yes. Yeah,
2: and the more seriously and the more deeply we understand what's going on in the Lord's Supper, the, the greater an incentive we have to examine ourselves and not just rush through it as if it were some empty ritual. Yeah.
3: Well, firstly, thank you very much for my stimulating uh, lecture. Uh, two questions, if I may. The first is as we've been looking at other theologians, if you could comment on where Cranmer might fit in Mm -hmm. in relation to Calvin and Nevin. Mm -hmm. Uh, And secondly, thinking of evangelicals on both sides of the pond, so to speak, who might involve themselves in ecumenical discussions with Orthodox and Roman Catholics, Mm -hmm. could they usefully utilise Nevin in those discussions?
2: On the first point, um, uh, Cranmer... I, well, I don't want to trespass too deeply into Cranmer's scholarship because I'm not an expert but if we take the Book of Common Prayer as embodying Cranmer's ideals for the Lord's Supper then he's really Calvinian uh, so, and, and remember when I was talking about the Mercersburg Liturgy Nevin incorporated quite a lot of the Book of Common Prayer into it Uh, Jack Maxwell's book is very good on that. Uh, As to the possibility of exploiting Nevin for ecumenical dialogue, uh, the book to read there, W. Bradford Littlejohn, he's got a chapter on uh, Nevin and Eastern Orthodoxy, and he's got a chapter on Nevin and uh, the Nouvelle Theologie, which was... uh, uh, the kind of more advanced uh, Protestant-leaning theology uh, that got a grip, grip on the Roman Catholic Church leading up to the Second Vatican Council. So he, he looks at those issues in some detail.
7: Um, it's just trying to sort of get, get a handle on what you were seeing about communion. And one of the things that struck me when you were actually speaking about it is that you talked about the impartation of the life of Christ. Yes. And it a friend of mine had breast cancer and had, had an operation for it and then in that period where there was a medical concern about it, it um, coming back again her and her husband daily took communion, broke bread together um, looking for the fact that this would not come back and standing on faith that it would not come back and I couldn't really understand it really what you've said is sort of thrown light on it what they were doing was this impartation of the life of christ and 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 the salvation including healing to by faith receiving that life that this this would not come back and reoccur and of course it didn't of course she was free of it
2: yeah uh well if i can act as a spokesman for nevin um i think what what he is talking about there is the significance of the resurrection for the lord's supper uh, that we're not feeding on a dead Christ, but on a Christ who rose from the dead and is alive and is present with his church as the living one. And it's the living Christ who feeds us with his body and blood. And because Nevin was trying to to avoid these sort of crude, cannibalistic notions of what it means to feed on his body and blood, he developed this understanding that it's the risen life of Christ, that life that was offered in sacrifice and is now risen from the tomb immortal to die no more uh, the spirit brings us into a sharing in a communion with the risen life of christ which carries within it all the power and all the efficacy of his atonement so it's that sense in which he was talking about communing in christ's glorified humanity uh, I, I can't comment on your friend's experience that seems very personal but that that's the theology behind what nevin was saying
0: Can I say thank you very much indeed to Nick Needham tonight for his very comprehensive talk and for the way in which he's helped to answer our questions. So thank you for coming, Nick. We look forward to seeing you again.